Well, I think I feel like priest is my lifelong penance for stuff like that. Welcome to Pursuing Call, a place where we explore what God is up to in our lives so that we can participate in God's mission for the world. Find out more at pursuingcall.com. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Pursuing Call with me, your host, Tamara Plummer. I am so grateful that you take the time to listen to my voice and to my interviews. Thank you so much. Don't forget to like and subscribe and possibly share with someone that you think might enjoy these conversations. Now that that commercial's over, let's get started with this week's episode where I get to talk to my sometimes priest, sometimes ballet teacher, always friend, Julie, the Reverend Julie. Uh, There's nothing that you particularly need to prep for. I'm just accepting the fact that you know that I curse, and so that's going to probably happen. That will definitely happen. And additionally, this is going to be another two-parter because I can't seem to keep my conversations under an hour. So I will see you on the back end. Thanks. My name is Julie Hopelmazian. I am an Episcopal priest in New York. And I'm also the founder of Faith on Point, which is a ministry that examines the intersection of ballet and Christian theology. How's so that? excited. That's great. Oh, so I apologize in advance for the farm. I am in the middle of San Juan, Puerto Rico. I love it. When you, my first question for you is, do you remember the first time you did movement to sound? Or danced is another way of saying that question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I went silent because I, I don't. I, I started formal ballet classes, you know, when I was three. So I, it, it is hard to have, you know, memories from that mm-hmm. far back. The, the first time I remember, the first memory I have is, um, I, you know, my mom signed me up for, for ballet class with, like, some sort of cousins and family friends, you know, so like her little mom group, uh, you know, signed up all their kids together. So we were all at our house and I remember them being like, oh, show us, you know, the routine you're gonna do for your recital that's coming up. And so I, I have a very vivid memory of like, they played the song that we were gonna dance to and then like the three or four of us or whoever it was were I remember like counting out loud, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, clap, one, two, three, <laughs> four, six, seven, clap, and going the other way. Um, but that is, and I, I, remember, I remember this because uh, I was really annoyed that the other girls weren't staying on the music. <laughs> <laughs> and thus like, began the future <laughs> of being annoyed by other people. <laughs> But I was also the kind of kid who like, I don't know, there's something in my constitution that is just not confrontational by nature. And so I was never the kid who was gonna be like, stop, you're doing it wrong. You're not doing it on the music. Like I was never, it it never even occurred to me to say that. I just sort of silently stewed to myself. (laughs) That these these young ladies are off off kilter. They're ruining the dance. (laughs) 
Was it yeah. was art and music a thing for your family? Was that dance? Oh, art, very music? much so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my especially my mom's side of the family, um, the village they come from in what is now modern day Turkey is like there's like Malatyatsis are known for being very artsy and creative and like to the point where like, you know, up until my, I mean, I was, I was still little, but like, you know, my grandparents well into their like grandparent age, um, that whole community put on like a variety show every year. Um, we would, you know, we would travel for this. I mean, it was like a big deal in that little community, like a, a sub sub community of an already tiny community. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and like on my dad's side of the family, um, my grandfather was one of seven brothers and all of them were very musically inclined. And so like we had, we were like the Von Trapps, like there was like a family band. Um, like, you know, one uncle would pull out the oud, one would pull out the dumbbag, one would sing and, you know, there'd be, you know, yeah, cast time in the living room. It feels important to talk about Anytime you talk to an Armenian to talk about that. <laughs> Music? No, the Armenian part and how that connects to kind of this cultural, like to culture, right? That, yeah. that, that, that ethnic nationality, whatever you want to call it, um, identity is kind of important to, cult to, you know, the culture that one has um, is connected to place and for Armenian folks that's a complicated history so I don't know if there's something about that 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 comes forth for you that like can you talk about your background and where your folks are from and where all of this musical melody variety show stuff is happening well sadly the variety show stuff is no more um, oh. yeah that I mean that sort of generation, you know, is, is gone. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't really fully make it into the next generation. We still sort of informally have little, you know, performances at home. <laughs> like my Boston relatives definitely um, hold that memory very closely, but mm -hmm. the generation that would like get together and put on those shows is gone. But also, you know, I think there's, you're right. I mean, Armenians definitely are like their their ethnic identity is a really big part of who they are but i think that's in a broader sense a a, a common experience across any people group that has experienced genocide or any mm -hmm. similar sort of you know threat of extinction i think there's mm -hmm. there, it just sort of becomes part of your dna that you really like more in some ways, like more so than the average person, like you really hold on to that sense of national pride. You hold on to whatever tethers you to the culture that you knew. Um, and especially when you become a diasporan people, you know, mm -hmm. they're like having, uh, holding on to whatever you can in a new land becomes the only connection to your, your culture. Um, and, you know, in the, in the States, I mean, the Armenian, community that my grandparents were, you know, uh, were part of as they fled. Um, my great grandparents really were the fleers. My grandparents, only one was alive at the time and the others were, you know, had, were born here. But, um, but that, that generation, um, 
they 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 also they saw the threat of like assimilation right and so there mm -hmm. were like schools and churches like they build these these cultural institutions that can kind of keep you together but that does start to fray you do start to assimilate it's just a natural part of things so we hold on to what we can i guess um but the the community has ahead. changed for sure so as a armenian what are you on third generation um dancer, religious person. Can you talk a little bit about your spirituality growing up and maybe if arts and culture something spiritual for you? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it's funny. I think like culturally the arts uh, connected. I, I, would, I don't know that religiously it did necessarily. Like the fact that I loved to dance and I was a good dancer as a child, um, that was important like at Armenian school because, you know, we did these like Armenian traditional dances. We had to mm -hmm. learn them for our end of year performance. We called that, mm -hmm. it was called a hantis, which basically is the equivalent of a variety show of sorts. Um, but every, you know, every, every grade in that school learned a dance and several songs. And um, so the, the dancing was, was important there. The singing, well, let's think that was part of it too, but like I could, I could use my singing voice in church. Um, so I would say like art in terms of the arts, um, music was more, my love of music was more connected to my life in the church than my love of dance was. Um, but also it's hard to, parse that out so in such like sort of distinct categories because for Armenians church is where you experience culture um and it wasn't that um divided I guess or compartmentalized so um but my like religiously growing up you know worship was I mean the whole thing is chanted first of all so it is just inherently very musical um, you know, there was a choir and there's, 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 uh, our, our, our incense, our, our we, the thurbles have bells on them. Right. So mm -hmm. like there's, there's, there's just lots of musical sounds. Um, and there, there are other liturgical instruments that also have bells that ring at different pitches. Like they're not tuned to anything specific, but there are all these different musical sounds that are part of, of Orthodox worship. Um, so to, to make the jump into the Episcopal Church, the Episcopal mm -hmm. Church still, to me, feels very sort of text heavy and wordy. Mm -hmm. um, because even though Orthodox worship is also very wordy, it's also so, so musical that you kind of just get lost in the chanting of it all. Um, and also kind of like all the other things that are happening, like it's really ornate decoration. Yeah. So like, I can see how all senses of your and don't y'all stand for like a really long time yeah in worship yeah i mean so the the old you know traditional churches in armenia don't have pews you'd stand the whole time mm -hmm. and so like like there's no kind of zoning out option i would imagine between the smells and the sounds of the instruments playing and the people chanting and the, <laughs> the standing like yeah yeah, that's that's really accurate. I mean, I think plenty of people probably do zone out, but, mm -hmm. 
that's a that's their own problem (laughs) yeah so how do you how do you get from growing up in orthodox armenian household to being an episcopal priest that's a long question i'm sorry (laughs) it's okay I, i i try not to give too long of an answer um, I should also be clear that the church that, that I primarily worshipped in was Armenian Catholic. Um, my oh. mom's side of the family was Armenian Catholic, and my dad's side of the family is Armenian Orthodox. But Please I, I say let more about kinda, this. Well, I, I let people kind of lump it all together because it's the same liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were Catholic missionaries that traveled east and tried to convert already Christian countries, <laughs> but you know. Mm-hmm. They're not Catholic, so they're not the right kind of Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a small faction of Armenian Orthodox folk that um, did convert. And so there's, there is an Armenian Catholic um, patriarch, I think is the actual title. Um, anyway, there is, a, you know, th- there is a small section, subsection of you know, Armenian Catholics who uh, whose hierarchy uh, draw you can trace it back up to the Pope instead of to the Armenian, um, you know, the Gatolikos, the Catholicos, um, the Armenian Patriarch of the, you know, like their the Orthodox version of the Pope. Uh, so, but but except for the lineage uh, in that regard, um, denominationally, the like the actual experience is like identical. It's the same exact okay. liturgy. So. Like my experience at my mom's church and my experience at my dad's church were no different. It was, you know, okay. so it's, liturgically, you didn't experience- feel like it was different. It's more the politics and the polity of the church than it is the liturgical side. Yeah. And, and really, I think where this, if we're talking about call, the biggest difference um, was that my mom's church had nuns. And those nuns were the ones who ran the, um, found, founded and ran the school that I went to all the way through eighth grade. Um, so I spent all of my formative childhood years in this teeny tiny Armenian day school, um, really only surrounded by other Armenians, except for the, the few teachers they, they, they hired who were, you know, taught English and math and science and, you know, more like normal American people. (laughs) Um, but or the, abnormally American people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you had to be a little abnormal to think, yeah, I'll teach at a school like this for like mm-hmm. half the time. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but there was that Catholic connection, I think. And so mm-hmm. people who taught in parochial schools also felt like this was some version of that, you know. But anyway, um, the nuns were so deeply formative to me because they were the, first of all, they were the only women that I ever experienced as a child who had taken any sort of vow, religious vow, right? Like mm-hmm. we knew plenty of priests and bishops and monks and stuff, but um, the only women I got to witness as a child who gave their life to God were these nuns. And I think what was so striking to me as a kid um, was how much joy they had. And they had a joy that I didn't see in anyone else. And I know there's tons of like stories about abusive nuns who, you know, hit you. And these nuns, uh, not all of them were innocent of that, but they, they hit you in a really loving way. <laughs> just, loving really abuse. Just, is that what we're doing too? <laughs> yeah, it's tough love. 
Um, like I remember my brother tells this story about um, <laughs> he had like fallen uh, during recess and hit his head and like there was this bump that had like clearly formed. And so he was sitting inside, uh, just inside the doorway with this like ice pack on his head. And this one sister comes by and she's like, you know, what are you doing in here? And he's like, oh, I, I fell, I hit my head. I, I you know, I, I have a bump. And she's like, let me look at that. And she takes the ice pack off, kind of brushes his hair aside, takes a look at his head and she goes, as my brother tells it, now I don't know how accurate this actually is, but as my brother tells the story, she takes him in a headlock, pushes the bump back into his head and says, you're fine, go back outside. <laughs> and send him back out to reset. <laughs> oh my God. So, so like, not, not always sweet nuns. <laughs> I mean, he just, my, Greg never felt um, traumatized by that. And he was just like, Julie, it was gone. Like I felt my head and the bump wasn't there anymore. She just healed it. She just healed it. <laughs> Oh, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, and, you know, they, they loved to, um, you know, pinch cheeks and chins. They pinch mm -hmm. chins more than cheeks. Americans do cheeks. Armenians don't do chins, which is why I think I have a double chin today. Um, <laughs> but that's where they, they pinch you when they think you're cute. Um, but oh, okay. they don't do it gently. They, they yank until you look mm -hmm. like a chicken. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. There you go. Learn something new every day. <laughs> So the nuns joy. <laughs> they had so much joy. And they had like, they were, it was, I don't know, it was sort of this sense that they, they were almost like, like a, there was like a secret club they were part of that none of, none of the rest of us uh, got to be in on. And it just seemed really cool and exciting <laughs> to me. Um, so I don't know, one day I just uh, found myself kind of thinking about this as I was standing out in the field watering, you know, the 40,000 mums that we grew at my dad's greenhouse. Um, you know, and it went in the fall, everybody has chrysanthemums outside. Well, they get planted in June and they grow all summer and, you know, we water them with hoses. Um, so, you know, when I was like 13, I was like, well, I get a free tan. I'm gonna stand outside and drag this heavy <laughs> hose around for hours. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot of time to, to yourself with your own thoughts. Um, pre pre iPhone, so no standing there with music on. I I was lucky the day they let me bring my yellow Walkman with me. Remember those? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, uh, with cassette tapes. Cassette tapes. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I wasn't even allowed to have those at first because if someone needed me, they needed to be able to shout, and I needed to be able to hear them. So you know, at first, I wasn't even allowed to have music playing. I just had to stand there. You know, and so a lot of time with the earth, you know, with God's creation, I think there's something to that too. Um, but I just found myself kind of, my thoughts wandered and I thought about these sisters and I was like, I wonder what it's like. I, like, I, I had all this free time with my own thoughts. I wonder what it's really like to be a nun. I wonder what their life is like. And something about that thought grabbed a hold of me. I was 13 years old and I really, in some ways, have never looked back. That was my first sense of call. Mm -hmm. um, and I was deeply, deeply just romanced by this. <laughs> uh, and I spent a lot of my teenage years, you know, very nerdy and 
sort of like not in sync with most of my friends because mm -hmm. uh, like I just wanted to spend a lot of time in church and reading the Bible and like like whenever whatever opportunities I had to like you know at church every Sunday I was like can we talk some more I want to know more about your life and um, so I have a question about that because um yeah, different people I've interviewed have had different experiences, but a lot of us are church nerds. And so we we often are the kids, it's like, wait a second, do we really believe this or do we really believe that? How was that received for you or how did you experience that questioning? And I don't know if Armenians have like altar boys and girls or acolytes or stuff like that. Like, was there space for you to participate in liturgy? No, 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 no. Girls aren't allowed to do that. Okay. So then where are you asking these questions and who's talking to you or taking your questions seriously? At coffee hour after church, mm -hmm. uh, I would ask one of the nuns if we could go somewhere, like sit, you know, in the hallway where no one else walks and just sit on a bench and talk. Mm. And they did. Sort of that. Oh, yeah, because they were like, oh, she might have a calling. And so that I was you know, I was going to be the first vocation from America, from the States. Um, mm. So, you know, ultimately that became very disappointing for them. <laughs> you failed. I did. I really did. So you go from sitting on benches with nuns talking. Well, I do have a question. What's like a question that you think that sticks out from those times or a, a thing that you were pondering? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, when I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, I was like, do I have to wait eight more years until I graduate college to to start this? Like, I was so, I wanted to go immediately, you know, but like, it's so age appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. um, I just, I kind of fell in love with Jesus instead of the boys around me. Um, Say more about changed. this. How did you fall in love <laughs> well, with Jesus? Well, not in like a not in a sexual way. But no, obviously. A... <laughs> um, yeah, I really, I remember having a diary at the time and, and every day I would journal and every day I would just be like, I still want to be a nun. I still want to be a nun. And I was, there was something that I was, so, the feeling was so warm and wonderful you know, almost delirious that I, I was so afraid I was going to lose it one day. Mm -hmm. um, and of course I did. And not, mm -hmm. not in the way I was afraid when I was 13, but our faith evolves with us, hopefully. <laughs> um, I mean, hopefully. Is hopefully. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I feel like most of my priesthood is spent just deconstructing all the bad theology people carry with them from the time they're eight. Mm -hmm. But um I, yeah, I think I lost my train of thought here, Tamara. Well, I was just thinking that you were saying that you fell in love with Jesus. And I'm wondering, who is this person of Jesus that you are falling in love with? Like, what is the, what is it about Jesus? What is it about church life? What is it about these nuns that you are falling in love with? Yeah. Um, I think if I'm really embarrassingly honest, um, probably part of it had to do with um, a place to belong and a place to be unconditionally loved. Mm -hmm. um, that's really who Jesus was. It was, you know, no matter, no matter who 
rejects you no matter, you know, it was also because it was a time of enormous transition in my own life. Um, we'd had the, our first major death in the family. I think that's really one of the like catalysts that started mm -hmm. to get me really thinking about like, who the hell is this God who would let Grandpa John die tragically mm -hmm. like this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it was the first time my prayers weren't answered. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, you know, I think that that was a catalyst for these deeper, I started to ask these deeper questions of faith. Um, or your prayer was it, answered, just not the way you wanted it to be. Well, yeah, I guess that's what some people would say, yeah. Um, but also, God's not a magician who, like, right. grants wishes willy-nilly, right? Right, right. So, also, God um, is not magic hands. Right, exactly, exactly. So, sort of concurrent with that event was also the event of, like, emerging from the safe little nest of this tiny school mm. that where I had a class, there were 12 other kids in my class, you know, it was tiny. And that, that was a big class. The class behind us had four kids in it. Um, but going from that very, very, very sheltered environment to a public high school where there were 400 kids in my class and I didn't know a single person. Right. Cause you hadn't gone um, to school with these people from K through eight. Right. And, you know, of course, they all knew each other. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a very, you know, and, and lump that also lump into that the fact that I had like zero social skills. So <laughs> I, I was the nerdy kid who wanted to be a nun who didn't know how to talk to kids my own age. <laughs> like, it was probably, probably a recipe for disaster from the start. But mm -hmm. uh, so, I, you know, if I'm being really self-reflective about it. I'm, I'm sure that that just felt so safe and warm and loving um, because I, I was in this time of great transition in my, in my own like social life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it, who, even if I had all the friends in the world, like who wouldn't be taken in by this message, this God who, sees everything about who you are and loves you, loves mm -hmm. every piece of you, mm -hmm. you know, like there was nothing about me that I had to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And that I think Jesus was the only, I don't want to say person, but for lack of a better word, uh, and these, mm -hmm. these nuns in a way were th that energetic was the force. If one yeah. <laughs> like that was the only place where I didn't have to be ashamed about any part of who I was. That is such a beautiful way to start your faith journey. I've been, yeah. I, I watched Encanto last night. And mm. have you watched Encanto? Yes. Okay. So the part where I like also wept like a, a I don't know, I wept. Um, but mm. uh, the the moment where it's like, the solution to the, and spoiler alert to anyone who has not listened to and not watched Encanto, <laughs> um, this moment of, I, I sometimes don't want to be strong. I sometimes don't want to be the ah. perfect daughter. I sometimes, I want to try, I want to, I want to have a nap. Like, I want to be weak. I want to, I want to, yes, this is my gift. This is my calling. This is my thing. And then actually the healing the reason that magic is going away is because people can't be their full authentic self. They, they have to be one aspect of themselves and that the healing power, the true healing power 
is in the person that says, let, let me give you space to fully be you because that's what makes you awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that, the Luisa's story really mm -hmm. got me too. That was powerful. The strong, yeah. the strong sister. Yeah. 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 That was the beginning of the weeping. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have talked before about other shows that we've watched where we sobbed like hysterically. Yeah. Yeah. This is us, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Um, yeah. I called, I sent, I sent my friend kept telling me to watch Encanto and I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then, but I was like, okay, fine. It's a good night to watch Encanto. I'll watch Encanto. <laughs> Oh, oh, not ready. <laughs> not ready. I probably would have wept more if I hadn't watched it with a family that had a three-year-old. Oh, um, because he was yeah, yeah. It kind of disrupts the like flow, <laughs> the yeah. experience. I was and I was playing on my phone the whole time until the part where she like yells at her grandma, mm. and I was like, "Whoa, wait!" And then and then when she's like, "We need to build this house on a new foundation," it was like decolonization is this what's happening how did you colonize <laughs> your mind oh, oh so good yeah yeah anyway so that's what i was thinking about when you were talking about this um fully accepting there's no part of you that is not good or loved rather not good or bad not there's no part of you that is loved um yeah makes sense that you fall in love with God, with church, with Jesus. Yeah. I, you know, it's an awkward time in, in your life anyway, right? Like, mm -hmm. no one wants to relive their teenage years. <laughs> I mean, I do. I actually, as terrible as it was, is as amazing. I went to an art school. I feel like it was like the first oh, time great. I got to live into myself. Like, I, mm. I could be, I was around people who were like, the black kid from the hood who also likes to wear black lipstick, but also likes hip hop music and also is into Alanis Morissette. And also like there was no, there's a way in which going to high school because we were coming from so many different neighborhoods and so many cultural backgrounds. It was like my first moment where you, you could be all of yourself, maybe not all the time, but you could at least like, put something of yourself authentically out in the world and it wasn't automatically like you're a fucking weirdo for thinking that way or doing that thing it was the first time it felt like oh me too like yeah I listen to 97 and I listen to I love Jagged Little Pill like yeah so, yeah yeah and I want to listen to Beethoven and I want to learn about that like you know I don't know it was a, so that was, was great your time. church yeah, in some ways. And church started to feel more and more like you're not following in. Why are you asking these hard questions? And for me, it was right. a hard time in church world because I started asking hard questions. And sometimes right. I got answers. And my mom is pretty open about, you know, having doubt and questioning the world and like wondering about things. So I think that allowed me space to explore more in high school, um, religious mm -hmm. questions and spirituality. But in many ways, yeah, like I used to go to this thing called City Kids, which is like an arts foundation that was geared towards kids in New York City, like the urban kid, whatever. Um, and we used to have coalition. And I think that probably was more my church than church was sometimes mm. as I got into high school.
and started doing other things outside of just going to church all the time. Um, it was like, yeah, it was like this place where I was a smart kid and I could use my brain and there were boys to flirt with and yeah. <laughs> you could like sing and dance yeah. and think and yeah. Create yeah, and draw. Awesome. And, like, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I always forget that that part of my life. And, and if I'm, if I'm talking about my sense of call, what started me down a different path was that exact thing where it I, I reached a point where I started asking questions mm-hmm. um, and the moment I started doing that was when I started to feel like I couldn't fit into the army and church anymore mm-hmm. um, it was not a space where you could ask questions where you could challenge the status quo where you where you know to, just to, to say like why can't women be priests I mean that was just like anathema I mean it wasn't even a question that was you know um shut down in this in a way of you know uh like oh well we just don't do that i mean it was it wasn't just a a simple fat mm-hmm. matter of fact response mm-hmm. it was a knee-jerk visceral like oh my god you can't even talk about that it was just mm-hmm. like such a there was almost um almost a disgust for the question like because it you know what i've come to what i've come to learn is that it was viewed I think as too Western of a question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it was more a cultural ultimate, reaction than a than a religious reaction. Oh. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, I think we can sort of prove that by the fact that in non-Western countries where the Armenian Church is still thriving, they uh, there are some women deacons being ordained. But when we talk about it here in the States, it's, it's absolutely it's, not an option to talk about because it's women talking about ordination and that is what the Western churches do. And that is to American, to uh, heathen, to whatever fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. so when is the moment that you switch from nun, like I'm going to be a nun to wait, can I be a priest to, wait, how do I, how do I end up in the Episcopal Church? (laughs) I mean, it all sort of happened in college. Um, I, I think by the time I was graduating high school, I wasn't a hundred percent sure I wanted to be a nun, but I, it was still like a, I, I, I didn't know what to do with that, that sense of call that I felt. Um, but by the time I graduated high school, I started, I think my hormones finally grew in, mm-hmm. <laughs> I started kind of liking boys and being like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. Let me think about mm-hmm. this a little more. Maybe but, I do uh, want to be married to someone other than Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to sort of trace a, an easy timeline, but college was when, because I went to a Lutheran college, um, I was able to, uh, have contact with more um, sort of progressive uh, theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I met my first woman priest when I was in college. I took a class in the New Testament that approached scripture in a much more academic way that examined what scripture really says about women in ministry. And it just opened up a whole new world to me. Um, so college was when that that sort of enlightenment, I guess, happened. And when those questions really started like settling into my bones, like, 
I need to know why the Armenian church is right about this because it doesn't feel like they're right about this to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I, 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 I think since ever since then, I had sort of been this closet Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was at least a decade before I formally joined the Episcopal church. Question. When you were in these journeys, was your dance life a separate thing from your faith life? Yes. Well, yeah. Yes. And (laughs) so when I graduated from seminary, I went to seminary while still part of the Armenian church. My purpose in going to seminary was to answer the question for myself once and for all, is God calling me to be a priest or not? Uh, and of course, I, I left seminary with more questions than answers, which was a bit of a disappointment. But I loved, I loved every minute of being in seminary. Did you go straight from um, undergrad to seminary? Did you do that? No, no, no. I, I spent three years as a, a music teacher in schools, uh, okay. in, in, a, in a school, a classroom teacher. And mm-hmm. then I also taught private piano and voice. So I, I, did, I had my teaching life for a little while. And um Actually, what really prompted me to go to seminary was um, I had told myself when I graduated from college, um, I don't want to waste this music education degree, so I'll just teach for a year and then I'll go to seminary. And I ended up really liking teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one year turned into three. And then by the third year, I was like feeling restless and feeling a little bit checked out. Um, were you still then, feeling nunnish or were, what were you feeling at the time? I was feeling more priestish. Mm-hmm. I think by that point, the nunship had totally sailed mm-hmm. um, and the, the, the priest uh, ship had, had left the, the uh, dock. <laughs> uh, I'm going to mix a lot of metaphors here, but it's great. Uh, <laughs> uh, I become unmoored. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't know, yeah, I didn't have an answer for myself yet. And, and honestly, you know, because the church and the culture were so entwined together, I think part of my hesitancy to just leave the Armenian church altogether wasn't so much that I didn't think I wanted to be a priest as much as it was i not ready to turn my back on my culture yet because mm-hmm. joining the Episcopal church, somewhere in my, the back of my mind, I knew that meant I was leaving a part of my identity behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is why but, I'd say I don't believe in conversion because it probably yeah. would be, it probably would be a different religious practice or something if I was culturally born in that practice. Like I don't, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As much as I love the Lord and as much as I love my church, it, I think if my culture was not of this um, place, I also would not have been able to maintain yeah so yeah I that that sounds really painful actually to have to make that decision um I think if I had made it when I before I was ready it would have been painful by the time I made the decision I was ready I I would like to say I was called um and I was it was not painful at the time um Mm -hmm. I think God just kind of I I'm also like an all or nothing kind of person. Like I'm not going to do something unless I'm a hundred percent sure about it. And I am going to be all in for this. Like, uh, so I, I needed to be ready to make that decision 
Um, and by the time I made it, I, I was. Um, but I, you know, when I left seminary, I, so sort of where the dance thing ties in here is uh, I left seminary with more questions than answers and also no idea what I was going to do next. Mm -hmm. And it so happened that the, the Armenian um, diocese, which is sort of the semi-national, there are only two dioceses in the U.S. Uh, there's a Western and an Eastern diocese and the Eastern diocese goes from like here to Arizona. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, the Eastern diocese came calling and they were like, we want someone to run our college ministry division. Um, you, you'd be a great candidate. And I was like, uh, I guess God's not putting anything else in my lap. So maybe this is a sign. <laughs> like I, mm -hmm. I was not super enthusiastic about working for the Armenian church, but I also thought maybe this is a chance to really see what ministry possibilities lie within. Mm -hmm. um, so I took the job and you know, within six months, I had like never been more depressed in my life. There were things I loved about the job. And, and I still look back at that time in my life with some, I have some very fond memories and some people that I hold very dear to myself, to my heart. And it was not where God was calling me to be. So it's no surprise that I got really depressed and I was super miserable. And that was when ballet found me again, or I found ballet again. I don't know which, really which way it went, but um, dance, I, I returned to dancing. I, I danced until I was about 16, I guess. Um, somewhere in the middle of high school, I was just like, yeah, this is not, I'm, I'm not gonna become a pro, so I'm done. Um, Cause that's kind of how the dance world works. Yeah, it does tell you right? like, oh, you don't do this. If you don't do this 1000%, then you're not, it's, all, it's kind of, that's like a weird thing about ballet like particular kinds of dance where like if you're not a hundred thousand percent in then nobody cares it's very strange yeah. to me <laughs> it is because most other activities you can do recreationally as an adult and nobody thinks you're like a wannabe or you're pathetic <laughs> or mm -hmm. like this isn't for you like nobody joins an intramural basketball team and has people saying to them oh really like you're a grown-up and you're doing that <laughs> right <laughs> you know? But for some when you get the thing that of being a basketball player, you're like I just like exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, I mean that that's definitely a, a part of why I'm really passionate about what I do now with with ministry and through ballet. Um, but you know, I had left ballet at you know the age of whatever 16 and kind of didn't look back because I didn't have a chance to. You don't have the option to. Um, and then I, I had a, a therapist saying, you got to find something that is going to get you out of this. Like what brings you joy? And like, that was the only answer I could give. I was like, I love like the, the one thing that had just remained unadulterated bliss for me was dancing. Hmm. And so I found a mom and pop ballet studio or just a dance studio, um, that, that like prom that, that their, their, their homepage was like a non-threatening environment, all bodies are welcome. Um, oh, and, you know, so the, the nice. pictures they have. Yeah. And, you know, in New York City, where like the adult classes are like alien extension or yeah. extension, right? Yeah, where it's yeah, like, yeah. you might be a beginner ballet dancer, but you are a professional jazz dancer. So right. <laughs> and sometimes no you, is... like some class, West African class, usually you can get away with, or like sometimes the contemporary classes, you can kind of not be a dancer but you really feel weird as an adult if you're like, have some pounds and we're not a dancer from birth or like. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole culture, like an unspoken culture in the ballet world where like, I just, I, I don't want to be part of it. I don't want that. I don't want to walk mm-hmm. into a room with everybody with their leotards with the tights pulled over the leotard and they're stretching before class and they're doing all the stretches that they know will intimidate everybody else Mm -hmm. like I don't want that I just want to be able to show up in sweatpants and a t-shirt and socks and just have like I want it to be fun yeah (laughs) just let it be let it be ballet for ballet's sake and it's not I'm not here to impress anybody um and uh, you know the tea that I took, I, so I showed up for this class. I absolutely loved it. The teacher kind of pulled me aside afterwards and she was like, you've danced before. I was like, I know, but she was like, are you okay in a class like this? I was like, yes, this is, this is my speed. This is my jam. <laughs> this is like, what I'm looking for. <laughs> this is exactly what I want. I want, I want no expectations. It, it, I don't mind being one of the better people in the class right now, to be honest with you. <laughs> I think it kind of feels, this is good for my good. esteem. I needed this. <laughs> And it felt good to just be, to be good at something still and to be mm-hmm. nourished by something. Like, I think if I was in a super challenging class, it wouldn't have been nourishing. It would have been frustrating. It was nice to just mm-hmm. go back to the basics and just enjoy doing some plies, you know? And that is where we take our pause. Going back to the basics and just doing some plies. So my questions for you this week, I have two of them. One, what are the hard theological questions that you remember grappling with as a child? That's question one. And two, what are the basics that you can get back to that are just plies? The things that you know how to do without it being hard and that can help to center you back into your genuine, authentic, and truest self. And with that, I want to thank you, and I hope that you will come back next week for my continued conversation with Julie Hopamazian. She teaches online dance classes. We'll have all that information for you in the description. Please check her out. Faith on Point does workshops, all kinds of fabulous things. So with that, I hope that you will write in with those deep theological questions of your childhood. If you want to guest blog, if you want to be on the show, just let me know. I love talking to people. All right. I think that's it. Like, subscribe, blah, blah, blah. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Pursuing Call. I can't wait to hear about how you are exploring God's voice so that you can participate in God's mission and dream for our world. Send your email and comments to Tamara at PursuingCall.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A at P-U-R-S-U-I-N-G-C-A-L-L dot You can also visit pursuingcall.com to learn more about what I'm exploring and envisioning and thinking about. Thank you so much and have a wonderful and beautiful day. Go in peace to love and serve.